I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. And welcome back to On Air. We waited to reach our 10th episode to introduce the first of what will be many airline CEO guests. And I'm delighted to say that we will be joined in today's episode by the CEO of Riyadh Air. He, of course, is Tony Douglas. He used to be the CEO of Etihad. He is now at the new Saudi startup, as it's being referred to. Of course, this is a state-owned airline that doesn't exist yet in terms of actual operations, but is set to take to the skies with commercial operations from 2025. Dan, there is a whole load of questions to be asked about Riyadh Air, and I guess this is why we were so keen to speak with Tony. Exactly. Guys, by the way, don't worry. Just because we're doing an interview doesn't mean there won't be banter. There is plenty to say. So Riyadh Air is promising to be an enormous airline to help Saudi Arabia fulfill its goal. We know that there are still quite a few hurdles for Saudi to overcome, I think, before people are you know, think, oh, for my next holiday, maybe I'll skip Grand Canaria and I'll go to Saudi Arabia instead. There's definitely work to do. And they know this. And this is ultimately Saudi Arabia trying to diversify its economy away from the reliance on oil production. And they announced towards the end of 2022 that they wanted to become a global aviation hub. And they said that launching a brand new airline is going to be part of that. And then, of course, if you hadn't known anything about Saudi Arabia over the last few years, it's likely that in the last year, you will have heard Saudi mentioned in conversation. Maybe you are into sport and you know about the, the Tyson Fury fights that are happening in Saudi at a, a pace right now with, uh, with uh, different events. Maybe you know about Cristiano Ronaldo and the fact that he now plays for a Saudi team, Al Nasser. And of course, he has thrown this basically local team in Saudi Arabia into the worldwide spotlight because that's what will happen if Cristiano Ronaldo goes anywhere. So, you know, you, you hear the words Saudi Arabia so much more over recent months and, and the last year, right? Yeah, it's interesting. They seem really focused on sports at the moment. They seem set to host yeah. the 2034 World Cup, right? Yeah, because Australia, as of recording this, have withdrawn. So it's actually leaving Saudi Arabia as the only candidate for the 2034. They have no no competition in that bid uh, at the moment. Everyone else is out. So it looks basically certain that Saudi Arabia will be hosting the FIFA World Cup 2034 in a little over 10 years away. And of oh, course, yeah. we it's, know that it's more than oh, 10 years, back to the 10 this years. Time. Uh, Saudi Arabia will be hosting in, in just over <laughs> 10 years to keep with the consistency of previous episodes. We know that World Cups are important to so many different markets, not least the fact that it will set to be returning to the Middle East, which is something quite huge. Yeah. Because, of course, the most recent World Cup was here in Qatar Did last you? year, which was which was incredible. Do you feel like, you know, Qatar was kind of trying to make sport its thing and now Saudi all of a sudden is coming and trying to like poach that identity from Qatar? Maybe. I mean, but isn't there a lot of poaching happening because... Yeah, I mean, they literally poached the, so their CEO, right? From the UAE, exactly. So we're seeing that they, they have now decided they want to be an aviation hub and ultimately replicate the success not exactly, but to somewhat, you know, of a similar extent of the likes of the Gulf neighbors that have 
already set up shop and established their aviation hub success, like in the UAE with Dubai and Abu Dhabi, like in Qatar with Doha and, uh, and, and elsewhere in the region. So that's maybe one idea poached. And then what they're doing is they're now empowered to take it to the next level. Saudi Arabia is on an aggressive campaign to open up, to expand, to have people know about Riyadh, about Jeddah, about the destinations across Saudi Arabia. And they're going at this with full force. And it's with the energy that maybe the other areas of the Gulf had around 15 to 20 years ago when they were recruiting and poaching from everywhere else on earth. So it's a, it's, it's a trend I think that we've seen before, but at the moment where much of the region is perhaps a little quieter, Saudi Arabia is very loud. And this is something that it's definitely working in its favor as it now prepares to launch what will be a new state airline that will run alongside the existing airline Saudi Air. So Riyadh Air mm. is going to be a sister airline, maybe the, the cool sister, you know, the, the cool <laughs> older sister, younger sister rather. You know, I think that's the the, that's the vibe. sister. Like, yeah, and we're going to hear about that, I'm sure, in, in the interview with, with Tony Douglas. Yeah. One thing I find so interesting when like places are trying to become tourist destinations, there's a lot of investment. Very few places really succeed like if i'm thinking about south korea which has been so hot like it's taking over culture people are listening to k-pop korea has really emerged as a very trendy country but still their tourism numbers don't really reflect that the hotel rates if you look in korea compared to you know hong kong taipei tokyo are much much lower it's really hard even for an incredibly relevant country like korea when it comes to tourism because people ultimately trust you know what's old is gold i think dubai has taken that spot in the gulf where people think of it as the go-to that's you know six hours from europe guaranteed good weather most of the year then you have jordan for example which has sort of holds the spot of this is the nature country in the Middle East, where we go for Petra, Wadi Rum, these incredible sites. So Saudi has a lot of competition in the region. And it's not, from my perspective, as someone who's been there, offering something that is very unique from these other places, yeah. as opposed to trendy up and coming places like Korea. Do you think that the World Cup ended up paying off for Qatar in the sense that they're getting, you know, astronomically more visitors maybe it's paid off for the airline because all their flights are full but do you feel like mm. it, the expectation lived up to the reality i think it's it depends on who you speak to as to exactly what they wanted to achieve as the legacy of the world cup in terms of global awareness more people than ever before would be aware of qatar and those that have come here for to experience the world cup so those that came last year there is there are statistics that show that a significant portion have either planned to come back or have already come back because they 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 enjoyed it so much and i speak with people here all the time there was a family who were sitting nearby to us on the beach and we got talking and they were saying that the first time they had ever come was to see an england game last year and they just had absolutely no expectations in fact their expectations were extremely low because they had seen all of the uk media rhetoric about how oh this place they don't even play football there and you know all this all these inaccurate awful reports that were coming out prior to i mean there are legitimate conversations that that were to be had about 
hosting the World Cup in the Middle East. And there were all sorts of sensible adult conversations to have. But when you literally had segments being introduced by, uh, it's questionable that the World Cup is going there because for a start, they don't even play football in Qatar. Really? They don't? (laughs) Because there's a whole league and there's a young population and kids have footballs in their houses when they're growing up, just like every other kid on the earth everywhere else. You know that when you then had those people come and then enjoy it so much, it's cool to see that actually they're, they're back or they were looking for jobs here. The tourism numbers in terms of visitor numbers to here have increased, as you might expect, since the World Cup. And now it's just figuring out, okay, kind of what's next. And I think that's normal for anywhere that has been so focused on one project for 12 years, which is what Qatar was, you know, everything was for the World Cup. We would see them digging up a road. We're like, okay, well, it's because of the World Cup. Yeah. You know, they're, they're rushing to, to rushing to finish this tower, that this skyscraper that they started building last year. Yep, it's for the World Cup, you know. So then now it's like, okay, how do they navigate a in a post-World Cup? era and I think given that we're only one year now since the tournament kicked off it's been a year of gathering thoughts figuring out the direction and we're starting to now hear some things from the leadership about what what direction they want to go forward how they want to become more business friendly how they want to attract further uh, different kinds of joint investment and so on so I, I think that's what the legacy is, is going to be. Yeah, and luckily at at the point when the World Cup was there, at least they had a very well established, respected airline. With the timeline that Riyadh Air has, it's all you know. They will only have been flying for a decade at most when the World Cup mm. occurs in uh, in Saudi, if it if it does. So there there's yeah. so many interesting questions to ask Tony. I would love if we get into the interview. Sure. So that gives me great pleasure to invite the chief executive officer of Riyadh Air, Tony Douglas, making his debut on the On Air podcast. Chief executive officer for Riyadh Air, Tony Douglas, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to On Air. Thank you, sir. Tony, we wanted to start by asking what is a typical day like for the CEO of an airline that doesn't exist yet. You know, all eyes are on Riyadh Air. Take us through briefly, if you can, what your day looks like currently. Well, I have to say the day is always super exciting. I have never done a startup before. Uh, Many of my uh, colleagues, uh, the Riyadh Air family, haven't either. It's the most remarkable experience because, of course, humbly, we start with nothing. And the greatest gift that comes from that, of course, is we don't have a legacy. Uh, It means that we can build upon our collective experiences of some of the challenges that we faced historically within aviation and how we use great technology and the lessons of that to develop a very modern brand. And our brand, as you know, is Riyadh. The brand is Riyadh. The brand is Riyadh, and that stands for three things. To be a genuine digital native, to have an obsessional attention to detail with guest experience, and to be a thought leader when it comes to commercial aviation, environmental sustainability. And therefore, to your question, every day is about building blocks that puts the foundations in place that presents the world's biggest startup in recent history that's brand supports those three important pillars and it's just super exciting energetic no two days not surprisingly are ever the same 
and the delight of course is being surrounded by so many energetic people who are all motivated by the same thing that's great that's really cool to hear we are curious how much is still being figured out at Riet Air? Is, is most things decided at this point? The big question being, are you going to be more of a transit carrier like Qatar Airways or maybe more of a hybrid like Emirates? Which, which way will you be going there? So it's a really cool question and it's one that we do understandably get asked on a regular basis. And the answer to it is we're neither of those things. And allow me to unpack that. So, you know, you started off with uh, Qatar Airways, fantastic airline, remarkable network, global reach. But the population of the city of Riyadh alone, uh, notwithstanding the size of uh, the whole of the kingdom, but just the city alone, is four times bigger than the population of the whole of Qatar. And today, Qatar Airways is a big transfer hub well in excess of 80% of all the passenger flows are transfer. And Riyadh is the 180 degree polar opposite. What do I mean? 93% of everything that comes into Riyadh at this moment in time is point to point. So there's only 7% transfer. And that's a function of demand far, far, far outstrips supply. We're talking about a G20 country that has the fastest growing economy of any G20 country in the world. We are talking about a large population, as I've already mentioned. And a big part of this, therefore, is about catching up to give us appropriate global connectivity that allows our citizens to better connect to the world. And of course, for the world to have far greater, easier, and high quality access into the kingdom via Riyadh. In answering your, your question, it's a fundamentally different proposition. This is point to point. This is all about connecting the kingdom. Okay, so we're just gonna pause here to discuss what we just heard and we'll be back with Tony momentarily. This is quite an interesting takeaway, right? I think so, because I think there has been confusion about whether or not Riyadh Air is going to be the global super connector airlines, the likes of Emirates, Qatar, and so on, that, that are ultimately responsible for shuttling passengers around the world via their respective hubs, or if this is a second flag carrier for an airline proposing to connect the world with Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia with the world, AKA point to point. And I think here, Tony has quite clearly explained now that this is the intention. Point to point is what Riyadh Air is going after. It changes everything because at the beginning, they were very clearly framing it as a competitor for the super connectors in the region, which which would be a game changer. Having a new airline with such a big budget, you know, investing in new products, that could be a real threat. But now, to me, it's also, unfortunately, a bit, a bit less exciting. They're actually just trying to get people to and from Saudi, which, which makes everything very different. Because when you're talking about point to point, it's convenience. It's not really competing on product, even though Tony insists they'll have an exceptional product. We know that it's not as important in those cases. And I'm just looking back. I've, I've just checked. 
in September last year, I was at ICAO, that's the UN Special Agency for Aviation, where the Saudi Arabia delegation gave a presentation on how the kingdom was gearing up to uh, a new aviation strategy. And I can see here uh, images I'd taken of that slideshow that they presented to all of the delegates and the media in the room. And they had said that the intention is to have two global passenger long-haul connecting hubs, Riyadh and Jeddah, hmm. along with global air cargo hubs. The goal was to, quote, become a global transit hub with, quote, a new global airline based in Riyadh, which, of course, we now know to be Riyadh Air. So it definitely seems that you're right. In the early days, I think the rhetoric including from the Saudis themselves, was that this was going to be an airline focused on diversifying their existing airports to become global transit hubs and then entice passengers perhaps with a stopover. But I think we've seen that rhetoric now shift firmly into, as Tony just explained to us, something that is far more point to point, meaning that you'll only really be flying Riyadh Air if you'll be deciding to visit Saudi Arabia or, or or leave Saudi Arabia. Now, of course, I'm sure, as we know in aviation, their flights are going to be timed in such a way that you will be able to connect. But it does seem like that's not the primary business model at the moment. I guess it's actually very similar to Saudia because Saudia is primarily taking people to and from Saudi. If you've ever looked at booking a flight with them, the connections are very long or very like awkwardly timed where you land at 2.30 a.m. and then your connection leaves at 7 a.m. There's many instances like that. I, I was really hoping we wouldn't see that with Riyadh Air. But actually, Dan, to your point, maybe the fact is that they are, yes, prioritizing point to point, prioritizing enhancing the connectivity of the, of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia itself. But it's inevitable that they will be used as a transit carrier, because if we look at the smaller Gulf carriers like Oman Air, for example, if I'm standing at the Oman Air check-in queue at London Heathrow for the flight to Muscat, a significant portion of those travellers with me on the flight are just connecting in Muscat. They're not actually visiting Muscat. And Muscat is a beautiful tourist destination. Oman itself is an incredible destination. I would yeah. actually encourage everyone's travel there it is absolutely stunning in terms of the natural scenery and everything but to not get too sidetracked it is an example of an airline that isn't loudly saying we are the connector you you should fl fly us in instead of emirates and uh, qatar and so on and so on but is comfortable knowing that perhaps on many flights the majority of their passengers are simply transiting despite them being focused on point to point anyway i mean it does just end up happening they they offer flights in, that connect very easily on to asia and that's what passengers are going to get in their search results when they're searching for the best fares yeah exactly i mean i think another reason oman air is not saying very much right now is that they don't even know really what their thing is at the moment unfortunately i know another interesting thing i'm thinking when it comes to point to point okay so saudi arabia is a huge country there, you, you can take a two, almost three hour domestic flight within the country, but then there's two massive low cost airlines in Saudi. And when I went to Saudi, I only flew with them within the country because why should I pay three, four times more to fly Saudia when these airlines will do? So then the question is yeah. domestically, if someone is traveling to Saudi Arabia as a tourist, let's say they want to go to Riyadh and they want to go to Alula, 
first of all, then they'll have to connect from Riyadh to Alula, which is like a two-hour flight, Alula being the main nature destination they're marketing at the moment. But then if they want to stay in Riyadh and they want to book a separate ticket, will they really be spending a fortune to fly Riyadh Air domestically? What's so interesting about this is that all these other airlines, Emirates, Etihad, Qatar Airways, also thinking about like Singapore Airlines, some of the world's biggest and best connectors, they don't have domestic markets, domestic flights. So this is a completely different challenge for Riyadh Air to try to compete on shorter domestic flights where where these other airlines, they don't even have to think about it. No, definitely. We're talking about a whole different landscape, as you just as you just outlined. And that's why they can't be treated exactly the same as, as the other golf carriers. So with that, we'll jump back in now to our conversation with Tony Douglas, CEO of Riyadh Air. Tony, what's the goal in terms of connectivity? Are you prioritizing non-stop, for example, long haul, ultra long haul services to make sure that just about everywhere that you regard as important on earth is directly connected to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia? Great question. And I think there's a number of dimensions in how I'd answer that. I go back to the pace of growth of the economy, first and foremost. If you're a business person, everybody's trying to get better access to the kingdom. It's the fastest growing economy in the world. So what they're looking for is to get better access here. And if it's somebody from the Far East, let's say, at the moment, quite often, their only easy way into the kingdom is via Dubai or via Doha. I did 15 cities in September, um, and you're probably aware that flying directly from Riyadh, we don't currently fly direct to Japan. We don't fly direct to Australia. Um, I did Shanghai, I did Guangzhou. We don't fly direct to those places. That's unacceptable. So in the first part, I think you'll find that the economy-driven traffic will be delighted with high quality point-to-point -point connectivity. The second thing is of course for the leisure uh, market. And interestingly, up to now, almost as we get towards the end of 2023, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is the second highest internet searched tourist destination. And that might surprise many of your uh, listeners, but is yeah. nonetheless the fact. And it's things like Neom, yeah. it's things like Red Sea Resorts, it's things like Cristiano Ronaldo lives in Riyadh. It's made go. people curious. They've got they've gone online and they've gone, ooh. And then when they see Alula, when they see Riyadh, Jeddah, Red Sea, the some of the examples I've already used, of course the next question is how do I get there easily? And that's another big responsibility of Riyadh going forward. So I guess the conclusion is as follows. We'll never be a Qatar Airways, i.e. dominated by transfer traffic. We'll never be yeah. a Emirates, another remarkable global success story, but is heavily dominated by transfer traffic. That's not what Riyadh Air will be. Riyadh Air will be about connecting to the kingdom, which of course is two thirds the size of Europe in terms of landmass. The kingdom whose population is bigger than the rest of the Arabian Peninsula's population all put together. The kingdom that's yeah. got the fastest growing economy in the world right now, where connectivity demand into the kingdom 
far, far, far outstrips supply. But given the economic growth story I've mentioned, it's not just about catching up. It's about actually maintaining pace with that. So a wonderful challenge. In some ways, what I would describe as a high-class problem uh, for an airline and one that will keep us focused for the foreseeable future. So you spoke, you mentioned about how, you know, it's, quote, unacceptable that Saudi Arabia is not linked directly currently with so many big, important markets. Is it the plan of Riyadh Air to fly, for example, to Australia? So I think it's fair to conclude, and I imagine most of your listeners would agree, that there's no good example of a nation that's a successful economy that doesn't have world-class connectivity. Those two things are hand in hand. The connectivity is a, one of many enablers to successful economies. Um, so for us, I think it keeps on coming back to that. And the fact that, you know, it's so important for us to be able to connect, you know, to all of the major cities, be they in Europe, uh, many of the secondary cities as well. Um, you won't be surprised yeah. to see as we expand the, in North America, many of the northeastern seaboard cities uh, and in Canada as well. To your point, uh, the Far East, you won't be surprised to see that we'll connect to all the major cities in the Far East, within the Indian subcontinent, within Central Asia, within the GCC, within Eastern Europe, within Africa, and of course, within our domestic landmass, which as I've already mentioned, two thirds the size of yeah. Western Europe. So our ambition yeah. is 110 destinations within our first five years of operation. And, um, yeah. you know, it's mission critical back to the economic vision of the kingdom and the 2030 um, presentation of how that comes together led by His Royal Highness, the Crown Prince. And and I guess the reason why I was asking you specifically about Australia is because, of course, Tony, you, you come from Etihad. Etihad being one of the airlines very well connected in over previous years in serving the kangaroo route. Is Riyadh Air looking to jump on that kangaroo route? So kind of no and yes. And why do I say no and yes? Um, <clears throat> the kangaroo route that you refer to is well understood as being an east to west flow and a west to east flow. It's predominantly people from Australia who are connecting via, let's say, Dubai, uh, Abu Dhabi or Doha, then to fly on to you know the UK, France, Europe, or wherever, and vice versa. It's a transfer flow. Yeah. The point-to-point -point element of it, Dubai is a good example, has continued to build with its incredible destination proposition. As we all know, there's something for everybody in Dubai. But nonetheless, that kangaroo route is predominantly a transfer flow. As I explained earlier, um, our ambition to start off with is completely dominated around the point-to-point -point traffic because we're so far behind the demand curve on that, the luxury of being able to fill up empty cabins for transfer flow is something we don't see anytime soon, albeit that will grow over time. So the, the notion that we're entering the market to try and you know go after a chunk of that transfer uh, east to west, west to east uh, kangaroo route is not what's on our agenda. Okay, thanks for that, Tony. We'll come back to you shortly. 
what do we think about this? Well, I interpret this. Sometimes you have to read between the lines. I interpret this as no, we will not be flying to Australia, even though we said kind of yes and no. Well, it's true. And and there were several kind of regions that Tony was just referring to, but as you said, had left out the, the Australian market there and had also linked up the Australian market and the kangaroo route, which allow us to explain in aviation, the kangaroo route, as it's commonly referred to, is the route that links Australia with Europe. It is obviously one of the most popular stream flows of passengers in the world given the distance of Australia to just about everywhere and the the close links between several European countries and the and the Aussie state he, he closely links that kangaroo route with transfer traffic and transfer traffic he links with Emirates and Qatar Airways and then reaffirms we are not them we are not after that transfer traffic and so as you said reading between the lines kind of suggests we're therefore not after being part of that kangaroo route service. And so perhaps Australia isn't going to be on the route map. But of course, they are able to, not least based on the fact of the aircraft they have ordered. They'll be having a long haul fleet of Boeing 787-9s, which of course, Dan, are incredibly capable and are able yeah. to Fly do this to route. I mean, hours on some routes, right? Yeah, this is... This is the aircraft that they use, that Qantas uses to fly non-stop, non-stop Dan, to fly non-stop Again. from London to Australia, to Perth. So it's, uh, that, you know, it's, it's an option for them, but it didn't, didn't sound like it's a, it's a priority there. It's interesting. He says 110 destinations. So if you're flying point to point, if you're not using very lucrative markets like Australia, the difficulty here, as as Alex mentioned, is the regulation. Canada and Australia have very, very strict regulations against allowing foreign carriers to operate as much as they want. So where are they going to fly? If you think, okay, who's going to go to Saudi Arabia first? Well, largely other Muslim populations. So we might see them, you know, start flights to London, but then Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur, of course, Dubai, Doha, Istanbul. The question is, what routes come after the obvious ones? Because I can't picture flights to Scandinavia, for example, if the focus is just passengers to and from Saudi. It's really yeah. challenging to be a point-to-point -point airline because there aren't that many markets that have enough point-to-point -point demand. Yes, Saudi has a decent population, but Saudi is not China. It's not India. And then I think you just kind of described Etihad because Etihad flies to these handful of main cities in major markets, but, but nowhere else. And of course, I'm not talking about Etihad prior where it was a much larger airline and they were aggressively taking on Emirates and, and other super connector carriers. I'm talking about Etihad, what it is today, far more boutique, bespoke, farm i mean they've, they've they've accepted that they want to be a smaller carrier they're not flying to everywhere they're flying to everywhere they think matters to them so they go to london they go to paris they go to madrid they go to lisbon they go to some destinations the main destinations in and across asia but they're not very daring with secondary cities or yeah. trying to boost their frequencies and maybe Maybe Riyadh Air is going to be closer to something like Etihad. I mean, would that be the most wild thought given that 
the CEO is the former CEO <laughs> of Etihad. Of course, the flip side to that is that Riyadh Air is wanting to be far more aggressive from now in its expansion plans. They have said that they want to fly to so many different destinations and so many markets. So maybe that's true of the reality. Yeah, I just have to say slightly unrelated. When I was uh, last week's episode, when it made captions and I said, Marhaban bikum al-Matni al-Tahiran al-Etihad, the captions translated and they were in Arabic when I said that. So I was like, oh my God. It thinks my it noticed what I was trying to say in Arabic and wrote it in Arabic. So I, I was like, that's pretty cool. Welcome <laughs> to the year 2050, Dan. You're the first one here. <laughs> All right. So let's jump back into the good stuff. You've heard about the potential route network. Of course, Tony, we want to know what will business class look like, given that this will be the highest cabin at Riyadh Air. The highest cabin tends to create a halo effect around the airline if it's good. So can we expect, you know, lie flat seats even on the shortest domestic flights, for example? So I go back to the the brand is Riyadh, the brand is Riyadh, the brand is Riyadh. The three things I explained, it stands for a digital native, having a uh, environmental sustainability thought leadership uh, position. But to this point, an obsessional attention to detail with guest experience we will present the very very highest of standards it will be a full service carrier and as you may have seen from our first exterior livery reveal at the paris air show it's not what people were expecting it looks more like a billionaire's gulfstream yeah, or you know g650 uh exactly uh thank you but uh we're going to be releasing the second livery at the Dubai Air Show. And we think the second livery is even more stunning than the first one. It sounds to me like you're saying maybe not lie flat seats on all aircraft. Is that correct? I think in Q2 of next year, what you're going to see is the most incredible uh, cabin proposition. It's consistent with the exterior livery. We're doing it deliberately because this is about building engagement until we go live Q2 25 with a progressive tease and reveal. Uh, that's why we did the first livery, Paris in June, the most beautiful second livery in the Dubai Air Show. Uh, we'll do the reveal of the cabins in Q2. They'll be stunning. I'll give another one uh, as an example. We won't have cabin crew uniforms we'll have cabin crew fashion. Okay, wow. Thank you for that, Tony. Alex, we need to just discuss this. For a second there, didn't you just think, wait, no uniforms? What, like I the did. images that were going through my mind. <laughs> I don't know, I suddenly imagined, uh, you know, in the early, early, early days of, of EasyJet where they would wear jeans with like an orange t-shirt, which of course <laughs> is, is not, it doesn't match up with the big goals and aspirations, but of course, we have since heard that it's not that they're going to have cabin crew uniforms, they're going to have cabin crew fashion, which is, uh, which is an interesting, uh, interesting um, proposal. At the same time, we have seen in recent weeks, airlines focus on making their new uniform some kind of fashion statement. I don't know if you've seen the yeah, latest I have. uniforms Air from Air Serbia from, was uh, strutting on Air Serbia. They had a full catwalk show. Did you see, I was actually thinking of Greece's national carrier, Aegean. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you see that? That okay. like, super kind of 
chic, trendy and, and very fashion focused in terms of what we'd see perhaps more on a runway than we would see a fashion yeah. runway rather than a, a, an airport runway. But how how do we feel about this is what I want to ask you. Like, do, does anyone care that the crew is wearing like the latest fashion? What's the big deal? Is it for the crew to feel better and to feel like, you know, they're rocking a cool outfit? Maybe. And I also just think there's so much attention to this right now to these kind of and and they are as an airline working out on how to say what we will be because the airline doesn't exist so i think it's so easy to to be able to give little hints to build a picture as to what the airline is going to be that they are going to be coming out with statements like you know we will be this and we will be that and and the idea and the i guess the consistency in what we've heard from tony so far is that they want to shake things up from expectations and they want to do things a little bit differently and so cabin crew uniform the phrase out the window cabin crew fashion you know in perhaps it probably just means exactly the same i mean saudia the existing state airline of saudi arabia that that uniform is something that has been around for a a while yeah it's quite it's, it's quite plain revolutionary blue. yeah exactly it's it's kind of safe there's one airline where i'm like Wow, the crew, I almost feel bad for the crew at KLM wearing those, yes. they're like almost jarring on the eyes to see these poor people wearing their uniforms. It's like a, a, a this awful shade of blue. It's not baby blue, nor yeah. navy blue, nor yeah. royal blue. It's like car rental promotion blue. <laughs> yes. Very in your face blue, like, like woo, yeah. <laughs> that type of thing. It will be I, interesting. As well. Yeah, it will be interesting with with Riyad Air to see if they can come up with such an iconic uniform that it matches. Like when I think of the two iconic uniforms that everyone in the world will look at, it's the Singapore Airlines Kabaya and Emirates uniform, to be honest, because their uniforms have become so iconic and the crew is always wearing it in a very particular style at the airport. So there, the uniforms have, have become a huge part of the branding. But you have these airlines like Aegean, like Air Serbia, granted, not the biggest airlines, doing fashion shows. And at the end of the day, it's like you're going to see them at the airport and wonder which airline is that. It's very true. It's true. But but the truth is, as you said, is that there are some airlines that you just instantly know. OK, here, I think we've just heard that from being this young, savvy, digital airline that Riyadh Air wants to be. Part of that is that they want to be fashion forward with cabin crew uniform but yes i did hold my breath at the moment tony had told us we won't be having cabin crew uniforms i mean we could have we could have immediately <laughs> wrapped up there thank you very much tony douglas for joining us. <laughs> what a great exclusive quite the, quite the headline but we've since discovered that actually he just means that the airline's going to be more fashion conscious rather than well interesting to see how the whole fashion thing links up with sustainability because of course mm -hmm. fast fashion as a whole is you know under fire for its contribution to global co2 and so exactly on. and i know that sustainability does matter to tony douglas because of it was his priority at etihad as well as having the airline in better financial health which which he did he did because there were some mega losses at etihad prior to him being the ceo it was all James Hogan's uh, destruction. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, 
Our the... next guest is James Hogan, everybody. <laughs> Not yet, no. Uh, but uh, he, he did focus quite a bit on sustainability after, so I, I know that that's something that matters. Yeah, you know what would be to Tony. genuinely cool, which I think would get a lot of hype? I don't know if Riyadh Air could pull this off, but if some airline would have like uniforms co-branded with a really trendy brand like Nike or or even mm. like Alu Yoga, Alo, Alu or Lululemon, like although love be Alu a, Yoga. Yeah, even though it would be a bit of a twist, like I think people would genuinely be talking about that. Like, wow, the crew is wearing yeah. this brand that I love as opposed to Etihad have this. Etihad have this partnership now for their tableware and homeware with Armani Casa. Yeah. So the, the bedding is from Armani, the tableware is from Armani. The uniform is a bit cooler than like the the yeah. glasses. And just as we mentioned in last week's episode, imagine if it was focused on some kind of athleisure scenario where it doesn't necessarily have to be this formal wear, but something that's maybe formal casual-esque smart cash yeah the other part of this question which we need to address or his answer is that yeah i i am interpreting this given that he didn't give us a yes as no Riyadh air will also not have live flat seats on all flights of course they could disprove us but that's my takeaway do you need a live flat seat to go from Riyadh to dubai no you absolutely don't but it again adds to their their competitiveness especially considering mm. that Emirates, Qatar Airways, Etihad are all mostly flying wide bodies to Saudi that have live flat seats. So it's it's a fly Dubai. Fly Dubai has of course invested in live flat, decent premium seating in a small single yeah. 737 Max cabin. So, yeah, exactly. So to compete in this region, you sort of do need a very impressive cabin. And of course, it, even a, it's a two-hour flight, I think, from Dubai to Riyadh. Of course, you don't need a life flat seat, but has anyone ever mm -hmm. complained about having a life flat seat? Absolutely not. So when he starts talking about yeah. sustainability, of course, again, I read into that as, yeah, of course, it's better to have non-life flat seats. And that's really what he's saying here. Yeah. Let's jump in back to our conversation with Tony. So Tony and Dan, I know you remember this because it was around a year ago now that the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman outlined these plans for Saudi Arabia to become a global aviation hub. Yeah, of course, with the goal to attract tens of millions, I've heard up to 100 million tourists in an effort to diversify the economy and move away from reliance on oil. He is also the figure that in March of this year announced the establishment of Riyadh Air, what will become the country's newest airline. Throughout all of this, Tony, he's been a key figure. And so I was wondering, what's your relationship like with him? How involved is he with the plans and with the direction of what will be this new Saudi state startup? His, His Highness is an absolutely outstanding leader. And I think to international acclaim, the transformation in particular over the last seven years here in the kingdom is extraordinary. And it's the power of now. What do I mean? The pace is phenomenal. And there's a very, very clear um, vision expressed uh, to deliver by 2030, 13 key pillars that His Highness has put together and led through the senior leadership here. An enabler to all of that is global connectivity. As I mentioned before, there's no good example of a successful economy 
that doesn't have world-class connectivity. Aviation does play a big part in that. It obviously supports tourism. It supports many of the other uh, pillars that are contained within that 2030 vision. So as the Riyadh family, we're humbled to be a small part in a very, very important uh, national agenda. And it's a really exciting time to be here in the kingdom and being able to get here a lot easier with a super high quality product is what Riyadh is all about. Dan, I'll just jump in with you in reaction to, to what we've just heard. I mean, it's clear, as we've spoken about throughout much of this episode now, the direction and the energy of Saudi Arabia is what is ultimately giving them the edge right now. They have the means in terms of the financing to be able to splash the cash on projects that will, if you hadn't previously considered visiting Saudi Arabia, but you're interested in watching this uh, in watching this game of sport, but you're interested in attending this conference, but you're interested in doing business in a somewhat tax-free environment, that's what they're now pushing heavily. And Riyadh Air is now clearly part of the, the leadership's national strategy in achieving what they want to achieve in a very short space of time by 2030. Exactly. It's really funny to think about this in comparison to Europe or the US. For example, there's so many countries where this applies, but can you imagine like, President Biden or Trump going in and saying, this is my vision for United Airlines and this is how we need to do it. It doesn't work that way, but it's very unique to have an airline align its vision and its mission with a country and have the leadership pushing it in a certain direction, which I think gives a big competitive strength, of course, over airlines. Often in Europe, we see airlines actually a bit in conflict with their government about different regulations yeah. that are being introduced. Of course, KLM and the Dutch government are, or Amsterdam Airport, really, they're butting heads over what's best for yeah. sustainability and the future. So it's it's very interesting how things can be so different around the world. 100%. And it gives them that, as you say, that advantage when they have leadership that is actively willing for the success of something brand new. You know, whatever this airline wants to set out to achieve, it is going to be able to do so with the fewest of hurdles, at least in the re in relation to whatever they can control in Saudi Arabia. Will they come up against regulatory hurdles in terms of access to, for example, airport slots or to access to frequencies in protectionist markets? Uh, incredibly, uh, you know, recently with what we're seeing with Australia trying to keep out foreign airlines, with Canada also being uh, much more protectionist over recent years in terms of keeping out foreign airlines rather than opening up. Yeah, all airlines are going to, to, to see this. But in terms of what they can control, the path ahead is going to be uh, a smoother, more energetic, more disruptive ride when you have the state leadership actively assisting with the direction of an airline, as is often the case with airlines that are state-owned, but of course it doesn't happen everywhere. You know, the, it's very easy to think that the state-owned airlines only belong to the region of the Middle East. It's just simply not true. They're all over Asia. They're also quite common across Europe, but we don't see that same, uh, that same dynamic and tie-up between leadership and, and the airlines. Absolutely, Alex. Well, on that note, Tony Douglas, CEO of Riyadh Air, thank you so much for joining us as our debut 
airline CEO guests here on the On Air podcast. It's been really exciting having you and thanks for some valuable insights. Thank you, Tony. It's been a pleasure and come back soon. Gentlemen, thank you very much and I will do. So that's our interview, guys. Now, of course, we need some time for your Q&A. Okay, Alex, Matthew asks, what are our thoughts on long-haul, low-cost airlines? Do we think they're sustainable in the long run? I think that history has shown us that the overwhelming majority end up collapsing as businesses because the margins are already so thin and tight in the aviation world. When you're trying to make a profit, but also consistently offer low fares, it's extremely difficult. And we've seen this with, I mean, uh, so many of them are Scandinavian, Dan. I'm just, uh, Nera, hey, Norwegian. Don't rub it in. Yeah. Thank you very Hold on, much. hold on. This is, you answer this question. You were strategically <laughs> making me answer. This one's, this one's for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say like the loss of Norwegian long haul was the biggest heartbreaker because they never really cared about Gothenburg anyway. To me, it's just interesting that low cost long haul airlines can really never charge much less or any less than full service airlines. Even if you're booking a round trip, it's very rare to see, oh, well, this is a fantastic deal. If I think about where do we see the cheapest or the best value low-cost long haul, the Singapore Airlines low-cost subsidiary, I often see like, wow, okay, this is very, very cheap, especially in their premium cabin. And Scoot, I think, is doing pretty okay. The question is, once we start seeing more 737 Maxes, more A321LRs, Will those operations become more sustainable when you can essentially take a Ryanair, although Ryanair has vowed they will never launch transatlantic flights, when you can take that type of aircraft and that type of business model and actually fly it transatlantic? Actually, I'm just reminded Norwegian did do this, but then they were flying to completely irrelevant airports with their 737 MAX, so that didn't really work either. Okay, the next question I have is from Akash. He says that he is based in New York, and he says this is relevant because, and I'll read the question, he says, everywhere that we go, we now expect Wi-Fi as something that we consume to be free, including in hotels, where now even if you log in to the Wi-Fi page and it says that it's going to charge you, you ask the front desk and, and he's right. They, they, they inform you that, no, ignore the charges. Our Wi-Fi is free. He says, why has this not happened with airlines? Why am I still on many foreign carriers being charged a fortune or given something ridiculous like 300 to 500 megabytes? Isn't it so funny when hotels still list, like you, there can be two different rates and then the more expensive yeah. rate is like free Wi-Fi. And I'm just like, what? Yeah. And it's like, oh, do you want, do you want, very high speed or extra high speed and extra high speed is going to be $60 a day yeah, and then you call for a desk and they're like irritating. oh you can you can you can you can go ahead and just press that we won't <laughs> Yeah. Okay, this was what happened to you in LA, I assume. <laughs> Excuse me, that accent was not LA. That was much more. Uh, Don't say what they call New York. Live America. Not, oh, not flyover country. <laughs> no, okay, flyover country. The US, yeah. So, <laughs> flyover country is beautiful. Yeah, we're talking about New York. Personally, don't you like flights that don't have wi-fi for your product it's it's like a double-edged sword i love it and i hate no. it no 
I, I listen, I need it as an option. Okay. And there are many flights where I, wouldn't you rather have it as an option? And yeah, then, you're uh, right. Okay. Totally. I'm not going to use the Wi-Fi on this flight. I'm going to switch off. What What about when you board and you realize there's no Wi-Fi or it's not working? And I think, oh my And you've counted God, on how, it then. Oof. That's the worst part. I think the amazing thing for people, if there was free Wi-Fi, is that, you know, a lot of people could easily spend 10 hours just scrolling TikTok, be very easily entertained by that, and then land. That's the nice potential about Wi-Fi, of course, being able to work. It's not nice. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's not good in the grand scheme of things. But if there's any time <laughs> where you want time to pass really quickly and not really think about it, it's like on a long haul economy flight. At the same time, you know, I selfishly think that I do like, love having Wi-Fi as an option. You're right. It should be an option. But for me, Qatar Airways has like a great best of both worlds where it's only $10 you get like an hour free and then it's $10 for an unlimited flight pass. So I can actively choose, do I wanna connect to this and potentially be less productive because I'll be distracted or on this flight, yeah. maybe I don't wanna connect. And then it's much easier to resist the temptation when it's not free for the entire flight. That's very, very true. That's very true. So we have a question. This came uh, via Twitter or X as it's now known, uh, straight to DMs, this is from Agnes, I hope I've pronounced the name correctly. Agnes says, is the whole concept of dressing up for a flight in formal wear in order to secure an upgrade a thing of the past? She says, I'm asking you this because you both had that conversation in the most recent episode where you stated that you dress very casually for long haul flights in your quote, athleisure. Thank you very much. <laughs> I am enjoying the podcast. Yeah. And yes. So uh, is it a thing of the past in a nutshell? Yes. Yeah. I mean, abs <laughs> absolutely. But I would not approach the airport or the check-in desk in a suit ahead of a long haul flight thinking, well, I might get upgraded. There are so many factors at play when airlines are determining upgrades, not least and most importantly, loyalty. You know, if you are part of the airline's loyalty scheme, then they're probably going to be to be first on the list. And that's not even considering those that are waiting actively for upgrades who are traveling as staff or friends or family of staff. And then once you've gone past that and you've gone past the airline's loyalty list, you then have those that are, are willing to make an upgrade offer. So still pay for it. But if we're talking about the real random lucky upgrades, it's mostly tied to either loyalty or to the Alliance loyalty. So if they're a member of One World and you're a One World Emerald, for example, uh, a top tier One World frequent flyer at another airline, that's something. But what I will say, this surprised me. One of my friends, she was flying Emirates for the first ever time from London to Dubai, one of the most, perhaps the most important route that Emirates operates. It was her first ever time flying Emirates. This was recently. She arrived at a check-in on a flight that was not full and they were like, Thank you. Uh, you've been upgraded, by the way. You're in business class from economy. Uh, so she skipped premium and she was straight in business. No loyalty to Emirates, no Skywards account, never flown them before. And the flight was not overbooked. She, she, the flight was half empty. I uh, could only come to the scenario that, that she was extremely lucky and they had thought she's never flown us before. So the algorithm was like, let her try it. You know, let's wow her. That's absolutely insane to think there wasn't one unheard person of. with status. And, the, you know, you're spreading the propaganda now, Alex, because this is what people I know. think will happen. 
but it's like no that doesn't happen so yeah i would basically say it doesn't happen because it's so incredibly yeah. rare I'd, I'd go as far as saying that's one in a million i don't know it is it probably is <laughs> I take yeah. about a hundred flights a year, give or take a bit. I, I'm trying to fly as little as possible when not necessary. But, you know, since 2015, when I stopped flying as much in the US, I have been upgraded one time, one time of all those flights I've taken, whatever the cabin may be. We were flying in premium economy, both premium economy and economy were overbooked and I had one world emerald status the very highest status this was on cathay pacific and then they had no choice but to upgrade so they chose me but that is it's so incredibly rare so it, it cracks me up when i see all these like youtube videos or blog posts that are like this is how to get oh. a free upgrade it's not a thing just enjoy your trip don't go stressing around about an upgrade and hey honey what People do you think, do about think though that there is like this hidden a, a, a bbc news presenter contacted me um, and asked, said that she's flying this airline and this route and said, how do I get the uh, upgrade, please? And I said, well, this airline op operates, um, it offers a bidding system. You can submit for a bid. And uh, and the presenter said to me, no, Alex, I meant for free. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't people, really happen. I, I really feel like people yeah. think there's this secret underworld, like you and I and all these yeah. people know something and we're gatekeeping something that no one else knows, how we always get like free business class upgrades or whatever it's not a thing well with that let's wrap up on today's episode we hope that you found the interview with Riada ceo tony douglas insightful there's not much is there dan that he can say in terms of the heavy substance because it is early days the airline is not launching until 2025 and they are very much in control of their own announcements he told us himself the kind of tease and reveal strategy that they want to do every couple yeah. of months from now until 2025 that this long saga of announcements which okay the airline doesn't exist yet so it's kind of <laughs> marketing i respect it it is it's a good idea because if you just announce everything at once and then you're not flying for the for another two years it's like okay everyone will forget about them by that time thank you as always for sharing the podcast liking subscribing leaving your feedback leaving your comments the podcast on air is available everywhere and we are proud to say that we are already the top number one aviation podcast in most countries around the world and in many categories we are in the top 40 including leisure in big markets like Singapore yeah, for example and the UK and Canada I mean that the results are really really good so we're happy to be your number one aviation podcast with all the other tangents that we run off on and uh, and please keep sending us feedback uh, yeah you and, know and we're really customers. happy to be digital natives guys i think that's we why are, our did, podcast we're just like riyadh yeah we're, we're, we're thought so much leaders, like riyadh we're, we're digital leaders <laughs> we don't we're wear uniforms natives. we have no uniforms <laughs> 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 there's so much that type that brings us together are that's we riyadh air <laughs> no we are on air and with that mm. we shall see you next week i am alex and i guess i am dan not riyadh air and we will see you all soon bye bye see you later